In this episode of Investors and Operators, I interview Michelle Noon, co-founder and managing partner of Clearhaven Partners, which is a Boston-based private equity firm focused on investing in software-driven technology businesses with a minimum of $20 million in revenue. The purpose of my content with 51 Labs and this show is to humanize our market so that we can form deep, lasting, meaningful relationships. Yes, we focus on the who and the what and the how, but what I really, really want to dig into is the why. Michelle, thanks for joining us today. I'd like to kind of rewind a little bit and just kind of tell us about your career. What's the, the story of your professional career and why did you start Clearhaven Partners? Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Thanks for including us in this episode. You know, my career in terms of my private equity uh, trajectory is somewhat typical in a sense. Um, I, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame and joined Morgan Stanley and their investment banking group out in uh, New York. And at the time, I was really focused on building that first toolbox, that skill set around financial modeling and analytics, and really just getting a foundational experience. And I was really fortunate to have that opportunity to move to New York and, and work you know, in the, the crazy environment and 100-hour work weeks and, and all of that, really building that. And I joined the Energy and Utilities uh, group there, which was a very well-respected group at the bank, had a lot of activity going on. And it wasn't necessarily an industry that I had a particular penchant for, but even within utilities and energy, there was quite a bit going on. This is post.com bust, California power crisis, deregulation, lots of kind of lots of interesting nuances going on at the time and really was fortunate following that experience to be recruited out of Morgan Stanley by uh, a gentleman named Orlando Bravo who was at the time running a newer industry team uh, focused on software investing on a really well-established firm in private equity called Tomacresi Equity Partners. Tomacresi having been the T and the C from the GTCR tree and before that uh, the Golder Toma origins, we're really going back to um, you know some of the real godfathers, if you will, uh, of the industry. And, and Orlando was building a software team out in San Francisco, had a couple of deals already in the portfolio, but it was a very small team. It was really the three of us, two partners including Orlando and then myself. And I knew leaving Morgan Stanley, which was a very brand name, bulge bracket, very large investment bank, where I had a very specific and very relatively narrow functional role, that I wanted something that was much more expansive because I could only see one angle on a transaction and I needed to be able to see quite a bit more in order to feel like I was having a holistic experience and a holistic perspective. I knew that for that, I needed to be in a smaller firm with less structure in terms of hierarchy and, and therefore more opportunity to just, you know, kind of see more uh, on a deal. I look back on that experience as absolutely foundational for me. Not only uh, was it an industry shift moving from energy and utilities to software, but also just the expansiveness of the role was phenomenal. I was the most junior person on the team, on a three-person team. And doing everything from building the models and making cold calls, calling and meeting with CEOs, um, you know, helping to shape a story around a company for exit, executing transactions, looking at add-ons. It was absolutely phenomenal early experience. And that was in many respects as well, 
the aha moment for me in terms of my love of software and technology investing, working with an investor like Orlando, who is absolutely, you know, rock star investor and really being uh, under his wing, if you will, and apprenticing and, you know, on his team was, you know, was just really invaluable experience that I couldn't have even anticipated. So I, I was really lucky to have, have gotten that opportunity. But it was really an aha for me in terms of my love of software. Before we switch over to kind of the, you know, that particular topic, maybe rewinding, what are some of the key things that you got from being around Orlando and maybe how you view yourself, how you viewed your career? You know, the the elegance of the learning, if you will, there is that it doesn't need to be a list of 10 things or 10 pages of things because one of the salient lessons that I picked up from Orlando was really just an ability to cut out the noise. At the end of the day, only two or three things really matter in a deal, really matter in solving a problem and spend your energy and focus your time on those things and focus your creativity on those things that really matter and let go of the noise, let filter it out. And, and he did a great job of that. I think, you know, I have learned that as well. Um, so I, I put that kind of at the top of the list that really comes to mind, you know, in terms of what I learned about myself, I think, you know, as a, a mentor in the on the job sense, right, he would tell me, Michelle, go meet with that CEO, go call that company. And I was coming from a very, you know, kind of pigeonholed role at a bulge bracket bank where you did not step outside of your lines. And that was really uncomfortable for me initially. Um, But, you know, I remember thinking, "Ah, I've got no business talking to that CEO. And he'd say, Michelle, go do it. And I'd go do it. And lo and behold, you gain confidence, you gain reps, you gain experience. And And then you talk to the next CEO in the same industry and you compound your knowledge on a particular area and that feeds on itself. And and so I think, you know, I learned uh, to gain that kind of confidence and and just by doing it. Um, So I really credit him with with those lessons. So kind of transitioning over to where you're at now, can we fill in, can we kind of bridge that gap and hearing this, you know, what is the story about co-founding Clearhaven. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, the, you know, I really fell in love with software investing and technology investing back then. At some point, I decided I would just sanity check that interest um, because I could see myself doing it for the next 30 years and regretting never considering anything else. And I think you know, I, I look to be a, a pretty open-minded and well-rounded person. And so I knew that I wanted to get exposure to other opportunities to make sure I could re-underwrite my commitment in mid-market private equity. Um, and in your mid-late 20s, as I, I joke, you know, backpacking around Europe to ask yourself professional existential questions isn't that professional. So <laughs> I went back to grad school to pursue, you know, the answer, if you will, to that question. And, and the thought process was surround myself with really smart, motivated people doing interesting things and see if something else speaks to me more. And I was really fortunate to get into Harvard Business School. I moved back to the East Coast for that. And I was exposed to really smart, motivated people doing interesting things. 
but it was probably week one and a half that I knew I was going back into mid-market private equity. So the experience was absolutely worth it for other intangible reasons, but it was not for career changing. Um, and uh, so with that knowledge, I knew that um, I'd be, you know, Orlando had made me a great offer to return to San Francisco after business school, which I was planning to take. In the intervening two years, my now husband convinced me I should stay in Boston instead of move back to San Francisco. He's in sales for an institutional asset manager, so I think it's a testament to his sales prowess. I ended up accepting a job with a firm called Riverside Partners in Boston, who had been in the industry for about 20 years, but was really at its own inflection point in terms of creating a more institutional quality firm, in terms of scaling the firm, and bringing on DNA from the outside with, for, with folks like myself who had been at, at other high quality firms and, and to help Riverside scale. And what was really interesting for me at the time in selecting that position was that Riverside had done technology and healthcare investing historically, but they had never done a software deal. And all I wanted to do was software-driven deals. Um, but they knew that they wanted to add more recurring revenue as part of their technology umbrella. So on the one hand, that could have been um, you know, a detractor. They had never done software. On the other hand, that was really interesting challenge and opportunity for me to build a software practice on a longstanding platform of success and to do so in a way that was not a paved path. And it's funny because as an entrepreneur now, as a co-founder of Clearhaven Partners, by definition, I suppose I, I have taken an entrepreneurial path. I've never thought of myself that way necessarily. How do you characterize and define an entrepreneur and why did you not consider yourself one or maybe even kind of felt perhaps a little of imposter syndrome of this this brand or this title called an entrepreneur you know i i meet with a lot of founders and i've invested in a lot of founder owned and managed businesses and and i have often heard something to the effect of well i didn't know what i was going to start but i knew i was going to start something and that is literally the opposite of me you know that was never the case um why I don't you know I, I don't know exactly other than I like I like structure you know I like an environment that has structure I like concrete goals I like to kind of meet a goal and then and then go for the next one we're describing like antonyms of entrepreneurship structure <laughs> like how did, do you think that you found that entrepreneurship found you versus the other way around I'm a, I call myself an accidental entrepreneur and but what I do realize, just looking back even on the Toma Bravo experience, the Riverside experience, these, these paths were not completely paved. I was the you know, only junior person on a three-person team uh, at, at TB. I was the only so prior software investor joining uh, at Riverside Partners when they had never done a software deal. And what I now see, which I didn't see in real time, was that these opportunities allowed me to create something. It allowed me to take something that existed and to mold it into what I thought was interesting or exciting or, or successful. And that ambiguity was actually appealing, okay? So I didn't realize that at the time, but now I look back on it and I do view those as stepping stones ultimately to this full blank sheet of paper that is starting your own firm. So, I, it wasn't a preconceived path per se, but I have definitely 
naturally selected into it now over a period of time. Wow, we can go in a lot of directions with this one. Um, so how has the entrepreneurial journey been so far for you? The entrepreneurial journey has been, on balance, absolutely phenomenal. Way more exciting and, and fun and challenging in many respects than I would have anticipated. So on balance, it's, it's absolutely great. And there's a lot more to come. And so we're not, we're not there yet. But what's been really interesting in a personal learning is I tend to be a pretty even-keeled person. I think it actually really helps in the investment business because you win some, you lose some. You know, I am highly competitive. I want to win. But you can't get overly upset or overly excited about anything because the next day it's going to go the other direction. So that fits well with my personality type, which tends to be very even-keeled. What I find starting a firm and being a co-founder and being an entrepreneur is that the highs are higher and the lows are lower. And that is personally a, an unusual dynamic where I feel more elation or more deflation depending on what's going on in any given day. And so it's really been an interesting kind of personal management exercise to make sure that I remember just like I knew before, that it's never as bad as you think, it's never as good as you think. And, and similarly, I'm not as bad as I think some days and I'm not as good as I think other days. Do you think that you've just become more conscious of the emotions as opposed to in previous roles, you didn't have to, you weren't experiencing as many highs and lows to that degree and then didn't have the need to recognize the emotions as much or am I, I just making things up? I think it was there before because you know, you really live the experience and you want to win and you want to get that deal done and you want to make that, you know, company successful. Um, I think the difference is the ownership mentality. It's, it's truly owning the failures, the successes. It's an actual ownership mentality. And we always talk about that. And I think you feel it to some degree in a, a partnership where you're one of X number of partners. But on the other hand, being the co-founder, it's that much more personal. And so that's where I feel like the emotion is amplified. So what keeps you up at night? I think about all kinds of factors in building this business. I think about, you know, bringing forward the lessons from the last 40 or so years in private equity that I think work really well and continuing to try to do a really good job with those. I think also about leaving behind things that I think don't work well for partnerships over time. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is a people business. This is a, this is a, a drip business driven by people at the management team level, at the private equity firm level, at our institutional investor level. And getting that part of the equation is absolutely, par right, is absolutely paramount to our success. So I think a lot about that. You know, one of the things that I haven't historically had to manage in an all-encompassing way is that human capital factor across the organization. I've certainly done it at a team level. And really just trying to be a thoughtful leader of an organization in addition to a deal team, for example, it's something that I, you know, I, I think a lot about, and, and we're, we're not a large organization. Every single person we bring onto our team has an impact, just like I did when I was in these yeah. organizations that were smaller and growing. 
Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I, you know, I, I think about the companies, I think about relative to plan, are we hitting plan? Are we, you know, are we applying our playbook enough? How fast can we move? So there's, there's a lot of that. I, I try to get sleep at night and I do, but <laughs> there's a lot to think about when afforded the opportunity. You know, when we look at, as you were saying, the past 40 years of private equity and just the way that it has evolved, if we zoom into this current vintage of funds, you know, within the past, call it five or 10 years, what do you think is structurally working with where we're at in the private equity model? And what do you think could be different in the short term and maybe the longer term? Yeah, I'd say there's two salient things for me. I've thought a lot about this over a lot of years, actually, and it has absolutely informed how we've been founding Clearhaven. The first aspect that I think is noteworthy relates to the transaction versus relationship mindset. You know, you talked about that in your opening here, Jordan, and it's easy to have a transaction mindset. What gets it done today? How can I incrementalize, get a little bit more economics? Uh, you know, how can I cut this corner and save a, that's easy to do. You can, you can do that. What it does is it solves a short-term problem. It doesn't necessarily build for long-term success. And so as we talked about, this is a people business. Let's start with that. If we're going to have a long-term successful organization, we are going to need to think about multiple stakeholders at any given time. And sometimes I think, you know, it's viewed as anti-capitalist if we're not looking at shareholder value to the exclusion of all else in every decision we make. I disagree with that. I think it is the best way to ensure long-term success when you take into account multiple stakeholders, when you take into account your employees, when you take into account the management teams and the employees of the companies we invest in, when you take into account the institutional investors and by extension, the students and the pensioners who benefit from those funds. And that is the balance that you need to strike when you are the steward of capital and decision-making in this industry. And I think it's easy for, for, for transaction-minded, deal-minded people to sometimes lose some perspective on yeah. that. So you're talking about a, a recent deal. So if you've, the first deal is officially done and closed, one, huge congrats, because that's kind of, a, kind of a big deal. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the deal and kind of what that meant to you and the firm, besides the obvious? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're really excited about it. Uh, we invested in a company called Time Trade Systems, which does enterprise scheduling software for a variety of end markets, with um, the number one end market being financial services, banks, credit unions, wealth management firms. And they have uh, been a very well-established company around about 20 years. Um, really nice growing company over time, not hyperbolic growth, um, really has an opportunity to continue to grow in a steady way with additional operational help. And for us, this is an absolutely right down the fairway deal. We look for businesses that are what we would characterize as lower middle market software or software driven technology, businesses that are north of 20 million in ARR, 75% gross margins, businesses that can really benefit from the reps that we've had, the prior deal experience that we've had, and therefore been able to bring to future companies. And 
We've got a very operationally driven approach to creating value with our portfolio companies. Time Trade had done a really nice job of getting to that first level of success, first on the back of the founding team and then with initial professional management. And you know, we looked at it as an opportunity to help that company get to the next level of success and to do that in a really efficient way. You know, in early days with that investment, but we're really excited about it. Also, the beneficiaries in terms of that end market of really being uh, deemed an essential business during quarantine and shutdown and. And so the need to have appointments scheduled versus just at will walk-ins and these kinds of things became even that much more important during the downturn. So we've gotten a bit of a shot to the arm even in the early days uh, coming out of the gates with, with some of that part of the business. But, but look, we are uh, humble about the road that it takes to get a business from uh, start to finish in terms of the, the operational playbook and, and what we do with our companies. And it's very early days here, but, um, but very excited about it. So you focus on application software, infrastructure software, transaction and payments, and kind of software-based services. When you look at the next couple of years, what do you think are some of the most interesting sub-segments that are going to undergo the most radical change, kind of given what we've been experiencing recently with COVID, with the economic crisis, with everything that is happening in this country and how the workplace is being redefined? Or is it being redefined in the long term? You know, we tend to take a pretty thematic approach to investing, even within software, whether it's an application software company or it's an infrastructure or it's a marketplace or one of these other sub sectors we also take a pretty thematic approach when we think about targeting investments that we're going after and we do a lot of proactive targeting so at any given time we might be underwriting four or five investment themes and these are themes that lean on secular tailwinds, underlying demand factors that we think will be persistent for years, if not a decade or more. That is something that is a part of our fabric because it allows us to bring forth a knowledge base when we first meet companies that we're not coming in cold. And that allows us to do more with conviction for or against opportunities that we come across. So, you know, themes that we continue to like and, and underwrite through even through COVID, but even before COVID, include themes around cloud management, for example. Our approach is in terms of a software investor is really focused on B2B software. And so we look at the factors that are influencing businesses over time as relates to technology. And one of those that is, you know, in the early innings yet still is really around cloud adoption. And that means lots of different things in terms of not just moving servers from on-premise to a hyperscale provider, for example, but also in thinking about how you manage and how you maintain and how you moderate those types security of security around that security around that. There are so many tentacles off of that, you know, off of that theme that we really um, think will be persistent. Um, that also, of course, plays into the notion of continued remote work, remote access to data and information, et cetera. So that, that's certainly one that, that stands out. The other, I would say, again, is a theme we were underwriting before COVID and we will continue to underwrite and, and it's uh, to the positive impacted by COVID. And that is customer engagement, customer engagement software. 
this started 15 years ago with CRM, which is now ubiquitous, but that was a real eye-opener for businesses and how you can more seamlessly interact with your customers. And we firmly believe that software solutions that help reduce friction between a business and its customers, whether that's in a pre-sale context or post-sale support, are going to be mission-critical solutions for the future. And we always look for mission criticality when we look for good software businesses. So that's certainly a theme that we've been playing on for a while and we will continue to be. That's a theme that uh, sits on top of what we did with time trade. That, that was a, a subset of that investment theme. Um, also really important when you've got an atypical way to work right now. Uh, what's your story growing up? Where are you from? You know, who are the, I'm assuming the parents had some influence. <laughs> so you know, like, what's just the story of, of you growing up? What motivates you? And kind of where does that come from? Yeah, we probably need a lot more hours to figure out what motivates me here and how that all works. Um, but I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in a small town uh, with lots of cornfields called St. Charles, Illinois. And I had a really, in many respects, I had a pretty idyllic childhood. We didn't have a lot of money, but we never wanted for anything. And my parents, you know, were really a major influence in my uh, childhood and and you know, early life in particular, and still to this day. And, you know, both of them were really, really hardworking. My dad was a physicist by education and, and then founded his own business out of college when it was, you know, really hard to do that without, you know, a, a stepping stone or two first. And uh, so I suppose that maybe I got some of my now entrepreneurial genes from him. My mother was an incredibly creative marketer and really both of them were so highly determined. And, um, you know, I really picked up, I think, a strong work ethic from them. Um, so that, that was, you know, that was my early childhood, if you will. Um, I, you know, I didn't know what I, what I, I couldn't do kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, I, I was the oldest of three children. I'm the only uh, daughter in the family. And I think with that came, you know, just being the oldest child obviously comes with kind of your, your, your typical oldest child uh, responsibilities and, and opportunities. But I also, I grew up with brothers and, you know, the expectation for all of us was kind of always the same. And so I think that really allowed me to end up in what was pretty male dominated industries between energy and utilities, investment banking and technology investing without ever frankly initially noticing the difference. You know, I was just there to do a job. And and I think my, my mother was really influential in that in the sense of she would just say, well, you know, you could do that, go do that. And I remember being really kind of shy growing up and really hesitant to, to, you know, kind of be put in uncomfortable situations, she would always kind of make me, you know, go out and talk to that person or go out and, you know, do that thing, try out for that team. And, um, you know, that again, just like my early lessons in private equity, I think you need some of those people who believe in you more than you believe in yourself initially to help you overcome those early hurdles. And so I, I credit them greatly with, you know, instilling a really strong set of values and, and work ethic that has served me well. If they were on this call now, what would be one thing that your parents would say to you, one piece of advice for this next chapter that you're now in? Probably try to slow down. <laughs> 
try to rest, take it a little easier. I've got, you know, kind of a, you know, an intensity to me that I think, you know, works well in, in our business, but, you know, unchecked can probably be, you know, a little bit, you know, too intense at times. So I think, you know, being able to kind of step back, try to find some respite uh, is probably something I'm, I'm not great at. Uh, they probably see that and encourage that. And, you know, they've always been really supportive. I'm in an industry that neither of them were in and, you know, it's, it's a bit of a foreign type of thing in, in a way. And, you know, they've always been really encouraging and, and never kind of questioned my path. And, and that's just really, really helpful, you know, even now in my career. What are some pieces of advice that you would give to women entering the field of finance? Well, you know, I would, first and foremost, I would encourage that. Anyone who's interested in it, go for it. There are different ways and paths to get into private equity as a part of finance now than there were when I was, you know, when I was starting out. So you don't necessarily have to go a traditional investment banking route or management consulting route. You can start in a technology company if you want to be a technology investor. And you can work in industry. And I think those are really rich experiences that are worthy of pursuit, even if you think you might want to be in investing later. Um, but for those who are interested in finance and, and want to start there, start there. And don't leave. And there are times when it's easy to want to take a sidestep because because the path is rocky and, and there are sound barriers you got to break through from time to time. But the best way to kind of be in the industry long term is to stay in the industry. So, you know, someone once asked me, what's the best way to get more senior women in, in private equity? And the answer is don't let the ones who start leave, you know, help them, encourage them to get to that level. And, and I, you know, I'd say the same directly to, uh, to women who are interested in getting into finance. When you look, maybe kind of going holistically about your life before your career and then through your career, are there moments in your life that were just, you can point to that and realize that was a defining moment in my life, whether it was something really good or, you know, maybe the first person who gave you a break or something that was an incredible challenge that set you up for a later success? There were definitely, you know, a handful of those moments themselves that, that in and of themselves may not have been pivotal per se, but those that you look back on later and you just realize there was such an ingrained lesson learned at the time. Um, and in terms of the breaks, I mean, we, we talked at the, at the top of this on Orlando Bravo as such an important influence on my career and my understanding of investing and how I invest and how I think about software companies and absolutely view that now, particularly with hindsight, as such a lucky break. That was truly pivotal for me. You know, I, I remember a specific moment when I had been working even as an analyst in New York at Morgan Stanley and working on a merger of two natural gas companies. And we had been working 100-hour weeks for a long time. This was in 2003, happened to be at the time, ironically, of the blackout during that big power failure out of a plant in Ohio and, and a, yeah. a big blackout in the Northeast up into Canada. And at the time, and this was pre-remote work with ease, um, I had a beeper, by the way, at the time, <laughs> not a little Blackberry. Um, but 
there was a generator at 1585 Broadway, which is where Morgan Stanley's headquarters are, powering one computer on the 32nd floor uh, of the building. And I was the lucky one during that merger uh, to be able to work on this one glowing computer in otherwise darkness. And it happened to be my birthday weekend and, you know, all of these factors. And working, you know, through that uh, weekend, I remember having a, the kind of beginning moments of there's got to be something more than this. You know, I knew I was going to need to find that next chapter, that next step. And I, you know, as it turns out, the deal itself, which was on the finish line, uh, basically died about a week later. And the reason it died had nothing to do with the financial aspects of, of the deal itself. It made good sense on, on the financial metrics, the regulators were on board, it was good for the ratepayers. It died because the two CEOs of the respective companies couldn't decide who was going to be the top CEO and who was going to run the company. And that itself was such an early lesson. And again, this business is all about people. So no matter how good it looks on paper, no matter how well the numbers are run, doesn't matter if it doesn't work for the teams that are involved. And so I would say that stood out for sure as well as one of those early important lessons. That's awesome. So the last and perhaps most uh, unique question is, if you had a walkout song, like a theme song, the Michelle Noon theme song, or genre, what would that be? So I like a lot of different music, and I listen to it, and I sometimes think about different soundtracks of my life. So in fairness, uh, you know, I, I kind of like this question. It's hard for me to give you a single answer. Um, you know, but I do like a lot of different music. And I, you know, I would say historically U2 has been like my favorite band of all time. Um, Coldplay's right up there as well. But I love country music and I love classical music as well. Um, so, you know, I think it really depends on what I'm walking out from. <laughs> That's how I would define it. <laughs> Which song I would pick? It's a good question. I would probably have to, if I had to narrow it down to one, I'd have to pick one from one of those bands. But I, I think it would very much depend on what I'm walking toward or, or away from. <laughs> awesome. Well, I've appreciated the time with, uh, uh, with you this afternoon. It has been, I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> and I hope that this is episode one. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Take care.